Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, welcome along to episode 37 of the Howie Games, which is our final episode of series two. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've loved recording it. This series, the number of listeners has grown to a level way beyond anything we ever expected, way beyond. So thanks to you out there, yes, you, for supporting the show. If you could do us one final favour and spread the word to those that you think may enjoy the Howie Games. Thanks also to the good folk at nationalcrimecheck.com.au for supporting Series 2. Due to your support out there, there will be a Series 3 and we're aiming to launch it late November. So not much of a gap this time, late November. Keep an eye out for it. All you need to do is subscribe on your device and you will not miss an episode. Pengy, Daddy talked about a big name mystery guest last week. Did he sort it out? No, Pickle. Really? But guess what? MJ sorted it out, Pickle. MJ? Yeah, MJ. He's not a turkey anymore. He's the guru. We love him. So, who's the big mystery guest then, Pengy? The guest, Pickle. And Australia should be bowing down to this bloke. The guest is... Whoa! Oh, my words! What a hit! And would you credit it... Timmy Cahill. You just knew he would, didn't you, in this game? Another little landmark for Australia's greatest ever goal scorer. Oh, yes. The superstar Tim Cahill is our guest this week. And that audio was courtesy of Foxtel, who have helped out enormously in getting Tim involved in the Howie game. So thanks to Foxtel, who, alongside Tim Cahill, joined forces back in 2013 to create the brilliant Foxtel Tim Cahill Academy which is a free footy program designed to inspire the next generation of Australian footballers through exclusive coaching clinics. The Ambitions Tour, as it's called, has been running for three years and Tim and the Foxtel team cannot wait to give more young footballers the chance to live their dreams in the fourth Ambitions Tour. Tim himself says it's all about inspiring the next generation of Australian footballers and giving them the opportunity to experience the game with the best coaches in the business. If you love football and you're between 13 and 16, tune into this or if you've got kids that are, you really need to listen because Foxtel and Tim are looking for the next group of young Australian football stars to join the Ambitions Tour in 2018. The exclusive camp, led by Tim Cale himself, if you don't mind, will feature some of Australia's best coaches and football experts. It's designed pretty much to provide young players with the vital skills they'll need to make them stronger and smarter both on and off the field. Boys and girls from all over Australia who are aged between 13 and 16 years of age are invited to participate, and this is the second year the Foxtel Ambitions Tour will be held in Melbourne. Listen in. Here we go. This is how you get involved. To nominate a footballer for the Ambitions Tour, head to foxtel.com.au forward slash Tim Kale Academy. One more time, get your pens out. That's foxtel.com.au slash Tim Kale Academy. This is a magnificent camp. Get yourself involved. You can do it if you try, try, try. If you try, try, try. You've got to try, try, try. For mine, few sports people can match Tim Carl's ability to lift his team to another level when the pressure is at its greatest. He's performed time and time again domestically in the UK, in the US, China, and more recently for Melbourne City in Australia. But it has been for his nation and his beloved Socceroos that Tim's ability to score at the most crucial times has made him almost a mythical figure 
in Australian sport. Quite simply, when the Socceroos need to score, the collective nation is all thinking the same thing. Get the ball to Timmy Cahill. And they find the gap. Clever ball for Robbie Cruz. Hangs it up. Cahill, there it is. A half century of international goals for Timmy Cahill. Deadlock broken. Order restored. An all rise for the greatest goal scorer Australia has ever seen. Cometh the moment, cometh Tim Cahill. That was just last week. Tim scoring twice against Syria to keep the Socceroos' World Cup qualifying hopes alive. Yet another clutch performance. This episode was actually recorded earlier today, that's why it's out a little bit late, at Melbourne City's training base in Bandura. And for mine, if any athlete symbolises the aims of this podcast to motivate, to inspire and to show the value of true hard work, then Tim Cale is that athlete. I am beyond stoked to have Tim on as a guest. Enjoy. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go Thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Well, this is pretty exciting for the Howie Games. The superstar of Australian football and Australian sport joins us, Tim Cale. Tim, we really appreciate your time. Cannot wait to spend an hour with you. Thank you very much. Um... I've seen and heard, you know, everything about your podcast and people you've had on, so it's a privilege to be a part of that company. We normally start at the start, but firstly, on behalf of me and MJ, who is here, and the entire country, thank you. It's a strange thing to say. Thank you for what you did last week against Syria. It was extraordinary. Can you just, from your perspective, take us back? Robbie Cruz has got the ball, but... What happens with you? Where are you trying to go? What are you trying to do? And at what stage do you realise here's an opportunity? And, mate, just, again, congratulations. It was fantastic. No, I appreciate it. Obviously, it's another monumental moment in my career and something I'm very um, proud of. But um, I remember it very easily because I'm all about percentages when I'm on the pitch. And when you're inside the 18-yard box, um, and it was later in the game, it was 115 minutes or whatever it was, and... Uh, the crossing wasn't the best and I had to give every opportunity for Robbie to cross it and because he had scooped it and it sort of like was in the air for a long time it gave me time to adjust so then it was a battle of who can jump the highest um, composure and then power because I had to whip my neck around it and do a lot with it and it went in but it's those little defining moments that have been consistent throughout my whole career and uh I had to take it. If I don't take it then, then it probably goes to penalties and who knows. But I'm definitely somebody that controls, um, you know, my own destiny at least. And, Tim, for those of us that will never experience it, I don't think I'm sliding into the soccerers at this stage of my career, what is it like when the ball goes in the back of the net and the crowd is there, the country is there and you've kept our hopes alive? What's that feeling like? It's, it's what you live for. I think um, the amount of years that I've sacrificed to my parents and my family and everyone that's played a little part in me being who I am today, um, it means everything. But it also is the moment when, that you already knew that was going to happen. You know, it's funny that people always say, <clears throat> you know, you couldn't write your own script. Well, I have, and I've done it for 20 years. 
in different countries around the world. I've done it in three World Cups. And yes, I'm an Australian-born uh, athlete with Samoan mother, English father, but always fighting barriers. And, you know, you look around and you celebrate and you look in the crowd. I can remember every moment. Is that the same when I scored in 2006? <laughs> but as soon as that stops, honest to God, I'm looking for the next moment. And that's the difference is after that game, um, funny enough, everyone's talking about how big it was. Yes, it was big, but we haven't qualified for a World Cup yet. So went back to the hotel, told my family to go home, my brothers and all my mates and all that. said, look, I'm not going to hang out. I've got a game against Melbourne's the victory on the weekend. And I got treatment till 2.30 in the morning. I woke up at 4.30, then I flew at 6.00. And then I was back in here at 9.15 the next morning looking for my next moment. So it's, it's something that I've worked on a lot personally, but um, it's, you've got to know when you're going to do something. At least you've got to have the intent to try and do that. I can't wait to delve into the professional side of it because we see it as a game, but I know for you it, it's a lot more than a game. It's your job, it's your livelihood. But, but you said you knew it was going to happen. <clears throat> do you will it to happen? Do you visualise it to happen? What do you mean by you know it's going to happen? Visualise, will it, professionalism. I think um, leading into that game, I watched the game for 90-odd minutes in Syria on the bench. Um, <laughs> and if Andrew put me on, he knows he's going to get five of the best minutes of my life regardless whether it's two minutes or 95 minutes. Every single day we trained in Ma- uh, Malaysia, um, I was training to start that game. Uh, treatments, morning, afternoon, night. I didn't basically have any game time, but it didn't bother me. After the game, I trained with a selective group to get the data up to be prepared for the next game. And I still didn't know whether I was going to play against Syria at home. So you, you think about it, you meditate, you dream about it, and um, it's the biggest stage. And because I've been on it so many times, it's sink or swim. But there is no real failure with the way I play. It's because I wear my heart on my sleeve, and I've always said to my kids, it's okay to lose as long as you lose in the right way. Meditate. Is that, that's part of your routine? To tell us about that. <laughs> You know, back at Everton, had a close friend of mine called Danny Donahue, who was a life coach, stroke physio, and then he started um, trying to get me into the, all the mental side. And because you're, what are you grinning about? You're grinning at the moment because I was the hard-faced Samoan sort of guy that was like, <laughs> I don't need meditation because <laughs> we just need the gym and a football pitch and the lads. And <laughs> I met Sadhguru, who is um, probably one of the most influential speakers in the world. You know, he can make 100,000 people cry in, in, in just talking. And I met this guy and he said to me, um, he had all of us in a room, Everton, he was speaking to us. Obviously, 99% of the lads are not having it and 1% click. I clicked. And he said, when you look at that wall, what do you see? Come on, sad, you just see a wall. He went, that's the problem. You're going through life not seeing everything. So he turned around and said, I can see the flecks of dust in the air. I can see the ripples on the wall. I can see the paint where it's peeling off and I can see everything. And maybe some of you in this room are going through life not seeing everything. You're not feeling your breath. You're not feeling the moment and you're not really living. <clears throat> I went home, I said to my, my missus, I was like, oh, I'm gonna try this Isha Kriya. And 
I think I needed to simplify things because my life, I was a robot uh, 10 years ago in the Premier League plus and my life basically was so professional that um, you weren't really living it in the expectation of the global world being a Premier League player um, with high expectations, high rewards, but also very, very low lows if you don't produce. Mm. Um, and I just got into a simple meditation mode with Sadhguru um, of something I listened to 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes at night just to simplify my life. And I don't sit there with my hands in any way. I actually lie down, it puts me to sleep and it wakes me up and I just attack the day. I basically have you know, a list of things I've got to do and I've got to do at least three of them. So, you know, it's a massive influence on my life. Um, and, you know, he basically helped me with my fears. And obviously you're going to ask me what my fears are. Mm. The only fear I've ever had in life is dying. And after a few sessions with Sadhguru, not to say that I'm happy to go, but um, I'm a lot more comfortable with it. Well, what was the shift? What did you fear that you don't fear anymore? Shift is is who your parents are, who your family are, what you build around you, uh, how you carry yourself, and then what your kids get brought up in. Because it's it's what you're going to leave your kids in the state of play of life and letting them be the by themselves. And um, I think that shifted me the most because if they take after my wife, they're going to be fine. If they be anything like my parents and the people that are around them, then I don't need to worry. I've left them in, in a good space. So my four kids, my mum and dad, my brothers, my sister, everyone around me, um, I work for them. If they're not happy, then I'm not happy. I can't play well. So people know, anyone that's close to me, David Moyes, Bill Kenwright, um, any big chairman, any coach, they know straight away that it's a family thing. So uh, I don't function unless I know they're all good. And um, that was probably the only thing that you're fearful of. And I was lucky enough that I could take that off my shoulders. And when the time had come to you know, explore the world, it helped me make the decision to go to New York, helped me make the decision to go to China, come back to the A-League. Every single decision I've made has been a big challenge and obviously risk. People look at it as risk, but for me, I look at it as if it works, it works. If it doesn't, then, um, you know, uh, you know, I'm at least a good bloke, so I'll end up okay. The thing I love about doing this is I get so many messages with kids going to training, swimming training, footy training, soccer training, netball training, and they listen to and from with their parents and the messages to get back. And kids are going to listen to this and they're already going to hear, oh, wow, Tim Carl meditates. I didn't know that. Or, gee, he's so focused or he's so determined, which is why I love doing the podcast. You mentioned your family a few times there. We normally start with your first memories, but because family seems so important to you, which I picked up in the book, Legacy, and congratulations on your book, mate. Thank it's you. called Legacy. It's a, a ripping read. If you're into, into sport in general, you should have a listen to it and have a read of it. Your family seems so important. So can you tell me about your mum and your dad? Yeah, definitely. Um, family's important because um, the sacrifices they've made, like... Where are they from? Where are they from, you folks? My mum's from Samoa. Right. The islands, Pacific Islands. Obviously, it's a rugby background. Massive cultural shift, you know, for us. That's all we believe in. That's what we live and die by in our household, um, regardless how much my dad, you know, likes the English mentality. So your um, dad's English? From England, Dagenham boy, West Ham supporter. So how'd they meet? Dad's a fisherman. Jack of all trades, <laughs> went on a fishing boat, cut a long story short, 
had to prize my mum away from the island before Gee. the granddad, you know, um, got him. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, <clears throat> moved to Australia. And I moved to Australia and, you know, the story is, it's, for me, it's inspirational because rented all their lives and had had us, our ki- uh, brothers, my sister and all that. And I think the biggest thing about it is um, because of the Samoan culture, it's you're always around family, you're always around food, you're always around, yeah, sort of like church. You know, I can't say that I'm really religious, but I'm very respectful towards it. Um, and I think what always hits me is the discipline. The discipline, respect for your elders, please, thank you, clean the house, domesticated. It's um, it's something that in our family that everyone has to do. It doesn't matter how old you are. Obviously, the women in the family are always the queens and they're the pride and joy. But I think it's mm. like I call it the beautiful scar. And it's funny when I read the Legacy. Scar. Yeah. When I read Legacy, everyone was like, oh, you know, you got to do this book deal and you have to do this, you have to have controversy, you have to have this, and you need to sell so many numbers of books. And I said to my guys, Chris Elder and Jake, who are a family that take care of me, big cricket, nuts. Um, I said, you know what? I don't have to do anything I don't want. If one person buys this book, at least I've got a Bible of my story, just of my parents, that we've got. And that's all that really mattered. I got to tell my story, you know, in layman's terms, um, of what I felt and not being dictated by, um, you know, angles and things that are going to make it sell more. And mm-hmm. I think that's the, the most beautiful part. And the beautiful scar is having to watch my mum get up at 6am in the morning, you know, work at Travel Lodge and then go to the ice cream factory after. So when you wake up, she's not there. When you come home and she's coming in tired, my dad had an injury at work and then, um, he he was so domesticated, cooked, cleaned, you know, did everything. We helped out, and I think those sacrifices. Um, it's simple to work. It's simple to do what I do. You know, I get great rewards. But um, as soon as I signed my first professional contract, which was eighteen, maybe when I was earning half decent money, um, that was it. We bought our first house, and my parents never ever worked again. So you bought a house for your mum and dad? Yeah, we did. Between my brother, my parents, the money we saved up. What was that? What was that like to be able to give back after all they'd given to you at that point as a young bloke? Did it you was, appreciate it at that stage what you were doing for them? Yeah, I knew exactly. It was the first piece of the puzzle. It was the first <laughs> piece because the piece of the puzzle comes your sister, your brothers. It becomes their kids. It becomes a, a bigger piece. It becomes my children. Life after football becomes their. You know, how, how in 10 years' time are they, are they going to be able to pay for their kids' future, um, all that sort of stuff? So I've always been overplanned. I've always overplanned my moves. I've always had a big portfolio to every move. I've never gone in anything blind. And it always has an end goal of, of um, completing a project. And, you know, four... That's a cool project. Yeah, four continents of the world. You know, I've been successful in all of them, but most importantly, um, left my own mark in my own way. So, before you bought your parents' house, before you started playing professional soccer, young Timmy Carl's born in Western Sydney? Yeah, Camperdown Hospital. Camperdown? Yeah. Okay, so what's your early memories? And did they involve football or not? What's your early memories growing up? Early memories would be family. 
Right. Constant barbecues, <laughs> cousins, brothers, a lot of rugby. What's a big know? Samoan feast involve? It's a pig. <laughs> it is. It's called an umu. It's called right. an umu. Like they, 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 the, you name it. They comes as a pig, and they do all the rest of it. They hang it up, and you know. I remember Christmases. You name it. Any big event. Um, everyone cooking for like a week leading into Christmas. Um, digging the hole, putting the hot stones in, the banana leaves. <laughs> but it was. That was happy. But deep down inside, for me, I was chasing something that, you know, no Samoan would have dreamed of, and that was to be the first ever to go overseas and play professionally in the Premier League. And at what age? At what age did you think that's what you want to do? I reckon ten, maybe a bit, like a bit younger. Because yeah. I test now, and my son is twelve, and um, you know he's pretty talented, and I can see the same traits and same things, and I can see in kids because problem now with parents is is the parents are trying to live through their kids and the parents um, you know put so many pressures and expectations on children to do well when they don't really love it and people say how do you know when a kid loves it I said well the kid that kid likes it because the kid goes home his mum puts his boots away for him his dad you know um, does everything for him and when a kid loves it the kid washes his own boots. The kid makes his own bed. The kid takes his own plate to the sink. Is this you we're talking about? I'm talking about any kid that I see that I feel has a chance of making it. So how did you express your love for the game as a five, six, seven-year-old? Were you obsessed with it, Tim? Well, when I was younger, no, because my first ever game, I cried. I didn't want to be out there. I was too small. I was playing up and age with my brother, Sean. What happened? But I didn't... I was too, too small. I was like... Wasn't you know just physically wasn't my game you know I was just a young innocent kid that was happy being on the sideline watching but not playing yet so I was probably four so you can imagine five and six year olds but that's the Samoan way you know you get taught how to swim they just throw you in um, so you left in tears well pretty much and that was a Balmain Tigers and then after that when you you know, kicking a ball and then you find out that if you scored, celebration and then backyard and you, you get these sort of things that clicks something inside me that I still get to this day. I can't explain it when I score, when I'm around, you know, football. It just excites me, you know, so you, you, you get that energy. And um, it's the energy that I try and make my kids find. My eldest boy wants to be a singer. You want to be a singer? You get your own words. You do everything yourself, you know, and that's what I had to do. Um, and I find that the simple traits from home do represent it on the pitch. You know, players that are okay for their mate to just, oh, die. It's all right, the defenders will defend. Well, that's not good enough in my teams, you know. And I want those same traits in my children to appreciate, you know, the opportunity to, you know, really want something and go for it. Back to Timmy Cale in a second. Again, if you're aged between 13 and 16, make sure to nominate for Tim and Foxtel's incredible camp at foxtel.com.au forward slash Tim Cale Academy. That's foxtel.com.au forward slash Tim Cale Academy. A quick shout out along the way too for a couple of young blokes who tune into the show up on the central coast of New South Wales, Jonty and Hugo. Thanks for your email, boys. Really appreciate it. Jonty, 
I'm trying to get Dan Ricardo on for you. It's not easy, but I'm trying. And Hugo, yes, I'm chasing down Freddie Flintoff. Good on you, boys. Now, we also have a release date for our new sporting documentary podcast called The Moment. It is coming out on Thursday, the 9th of November. And this is what it's all about. The seconds are ticking. I'm certainly thinking, along with 80,000, that, yeah, that something's going to happen. Just to get to this point has taken everything you have. The reality is I could die. I could die in three days. I could die in three weeks. I could die in a month. I'll never forget. I looked over my left shoulder and the flames were just roaring up my T-shirt and up my neck. So just panic, panic stations. Will you succeed or will you fail? Yeah, I was probably on the phone to my mum saying that I wanted to come home, like actually crying. It was... Like, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, actually. I, I just sat in my room. Will you be the hero or the villain? And I hit the ball and then I heard a loud bang. But it was the advertising boards of the side of the goal, so I missed the goal completely. Will it be glory? Yeah. It was so wonderful that he actually achieved that through all that struggle. Or will it be regret? Oh, it was... Um, That's probably going to hurt for a very, very long time. It all comes down to one single moment. So I was just like, all right, this is it. Let's let's go for it. After everything has happened, can you still do it? Can you still get the footy? Comes over, he shakes my hand, and he goes, how are you feeling? I said, mate, I'm nervous as hell. He goes, you're going to win? This walk was, I enjoyed every step of it. It was, you're going to take Australia to the World Cup. The Moment. That's the moment coming to Podcast One on Thursday, the 9th of November. Alrighty, back to the superstar, Timmy Cale. I'm going to skip ahead here, but then I'm going to come back. It's the great thing about this podcast. You can skip all over the place. You talked about your young bloke. Um, again, I was looking yesterday and I saw a great picture online of him singing when you were at the New York oh, yeah. So he's singing the national anthem, which is front of shot, but in the back, there's you line up to play with the biggest smile on your face. Yeah. It's great. What was it like watching you? So he's saying the American National Anthem, American which National is, Anthem. has so much more effect for them than we probably have for our own National Anthem here. What was that like as a dad? Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early Well, it was a proud moment because to sing in front of anybody mm. is crazy. And he was probably 10... I was captain, Thierry was out. Thierry Henry? Yeah, he was out, so I captained the team. But it was a massive game. LA Galaxy at home, <laughs> full house, uh, playing against Landon Donovan that I played in um, the Premier League with at Everton. Robbie Keane was playing. So we had a full hit list, and Kai said he wanted to sing, and I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I don't want him to fail. And that's when you know your son's got half a chance. Because he was so confident, so out there, similar to myself, but singing. I was like, at least football, you know, there's, <laughs> you know, there's 22 guys out there. And I was so proud. And that energy I took onto the pitch was all him. How did he go? It was all him. He was amazing. Was he? He, he, he standing ovation, but it was, it was nationwide across America. Every single TV it showed. And because of the, um, how big the game was, you know, 94th minute, I scored the winner. And it was, it was all him. You know, you've got motivations. I know you don't need them sometimes, but um, that's, that's what I'm talking about. You know, he's 14, year old, 14 years old now. He's taller than me. He's still singing, still chasing his dreams. But um, 
you know, I told him always with him every step of the way. And it's funny you say this because he wrote me a letter last night. Yes, Andy. After you read my book Legacy properly, and I did a podcast as it goes on my phone, uh, I read it to myself. And my wife goes to me, "Can you text it to me?" And I send it to your mum. I was like, "No." She said, "Why?" I said, "Because it's mine." And uh, she knows I, I I make notes. I speak about different things that are good to me, and I save them. I just think it's important to capture a moment, and pieces of paper can get lost in this day and age. And um, from you know that day we're watching the national anthem with the wife last week, and then him singing the other day and him writing me a letter. It's just, um, it's amazing how much, uh, you know, he's matured. Can I ask you what the theme of the letter was? The theme of the letter was, he, he obviously read the, read the first three chapters, chapters about family and it was like um, just my sacrifices. So now he get, half gets why I take his phone off him at six at night. <laughs> he gets why I'm critical of the little things and not so critical of the big things. So making your bed, brushing your teeth, helping your mum, loading a dishwasher, doing the gardening. They're just um, traits that, um, it's, 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 it's your apprenticeship. You know, I did it with Millwall for two, three years, you know, mucking in, doing the jobs and that, before I become that complete footballer. So I just want them to have, to see what it's like on the other side and everything else will be easy after that. In my opinion, you know, once you've done all the hard yards, then you can enjoy the cream, but you need to know what gets you to that cream. When did you first, from your memory, score a header? Oh, wow. Well, <clears throat> yeah, best header was probably Mackie Park, Marrickville Red Devils, from the right, curled in, eyes were open, headed it straight centre of the goal. How old are you? Probably maybe 10, 11. Do you remember all your goals like that? No, nah, I remember that one. Hundred percent, I remember that. <laughs> right foot out swinger, and I said good morning to it. So it's uh, yeah, it was, I'll never forget it. Hey, there's something um, <coughs> I do in this podcast. I'm going to play you something now. And yeah. We normally do it at the end where um, I have two kids, Tim, um, Sky and Mac, but they operate in this podcast as their nicknames and. Uh, mm. I have a chat to them in the morning and I tell them about the person we're going to have a chat with. And I've showed you young bloke. Uh, I showed my young bloke the highlights of the Syria game the other day because he's in the soccer but He's only five. So his name's Mac, but he woke up two years ago and he now wants to be called the Big Penguin. So the Big Penguin, uh, Tim, was very keen to ask you a question. Now we're talking about headers. This is his question. Hopefully you can hear it. Go on. Wow, what a great question. What's up, big penguin? <laughs> Hope you're well, my man. Um, yeah, so he's... I'm showing the highlights. He's going, Dad, that's got to hurt his head. Dad, that's got to hurt his head. In layman's term for big penguin, I would say um, open your eyes and head the ball like you would kick it. Right. Don't be scared of it because the problem with fear, it makes you clench in ways. When the ball hits you, everything's soft. But when you attack fear and you look it straight in the eye, you hit it and everything becomes stronger. So um, first thing is open your eyes. Second thing is um, don't be scared of it. And third thing is try and hit the target. 
Yeah, I'll pass that on to the Penguin, and he'll have his eyes open now. Because <laughs> he's got to get a haircut because he can hardly see at the moment. But they talk about courage in sport, Timmy, and to me, when I look at the game of football, only playing for fun, um, it takes courage to run all day. I can appreciate that. It takes courage to want the ball. I can appreciate that. But to me, when I see you up against these big six foot four defenders, to me, that seems to be the most courageous thing I see on a football field is people attempting headers, and you just throw your body and soul into it. Is it a scary proposition? I think for me is <clears throat> you're in a situation, and everyone's in this situation, everyday walks of life, and it's a competition, and the winner's always going to be whoever wants it more. And all I can say is, is anything that's worth having hurts whether it's your wife or your kids or business or anything sport it's got to hurt if it was easy getting it it's not worth it everyone will be doing it and I feel that um, the people that are successful the people that I've played with or the people that I admire in business are the people that are obsessed with not just winning but failing to become better people and better at what they do. So, yeah, I love the challenge. That's part of my Samoan culture. If I see Nemanja Vidic, Man United, Old Trafford, and I'm thinking, he ain't going to want to play me again. He's going to look at Tim Kale and he's going to say, oh, keep me away, Rio, you mark him. John Terry, he'll say exactly the same thing. I actually go and look for confrontation with the most physical guy. So... If you can win a battle against the most physical in a back line of four, it means the other three will just trickle down. Um, they'll be like, oh, if he's struggling, how am I going to cope? So when I go stand on a left back that's five foot eight, a little bit shorter than me, he's got no chance. Mm. Mentally already before the, the battle's won, after I've gone for the big guy. So it's always been looking fear you know, on a football pitch in the eye. Obviously, I'm smart. I'm not going to go in things where I'm not going to win. But, um, you know, in the end, I have a lot of respect for some of the best players in the world that I've played against. And I've been known for, you know, being pretty fearless and sometimes, you know, borderline, you know, not crazy, but they're like, why'd you go for that for? You get lost in a trance when you play because you want to win and because you want to do well for your teammates. But um, I've played for some big clubs with loyal supporters that I'll always have a home when I decide to finish. In your book, Legacy, and so many of these podcasts we do, Tim, it's often not the most talented, and I'm not saying you're not the most talented, mm. but so often, whether it's Mark Webber or Greg Norman or even Kathy Freeman, they weren't the most talented, but they were the hardest workers, and they had wax along the way. You were coming up through the junior system. I think you are probably hearing a little bit of too small, too small, this bloke's too small. A club, is it Sydney Olympic? Yeah. Got that right? They said to you, no. So you were going up through their program and they said, no, you're not going to play professionally here. Well, you know, I think that was a defining moment because the coach basically, you know, didn't select me. and Because? Because the same thing, wasn't strong enough, wasn't small enough. And you know what? It's like um, as you get older, I think I used this in another interview earlier, um, I'm constantly looking for solutions. So if someone's going to be negative, regardless of any information or facts, no problems. You know, let it be, let it ride, let it slide. 
And I'll find another moment to create something with actions, which has been the story of my life. But um, you just got to look at situations for what they are. And you know, that was a big learning curve because I had to drop down and play for a lower league and then come back up. Um, when I went to the lower league, I you know, broke some records scoring goals. I to play with my brother. He was in goal. Belmore Hercules. Um, and then I was making the right noises. You know, end of the year, you have a presentation and you win all the awards. And, hmm. I, like, it wasn't about the awards. It was about, um, you know, time's ticking, time's ticking, you know. For me, anyone that wants to be in a professional going to England or Europe, you have to go at 14 to 16 years old. You can't wait. And 16 years old in England is like the end product. You know, Ross Barkley, I was playing with him at Everton when he was a youth team player, and now he's worth 50 million, you know. Um, <laughs> these sorts of players that I played with and helped mentor to where they are, you know, today, 16 is the end product these days. 18, you know, you're looking on, you know, playing at 150 games in the, in the first team. So I always look at time as not wasting it now, and even then, and, you know, it just seemed like, how's this kid going to make it how am I going to make it then it was like the next thing which will come trials and then getting enough money to go overseas but it was the best thing that ever happened to me so you went overseas trialed as how old were you 16 roughly 17 so mum and dad say righto we've scraped together the money you're going to the other side of the world are you just like let me at it or are you yeah. like gee whiz wasn't phased wasn't phased the only thing that really affected me was the investment my parents had to get a loan to mum and dad so they, they invest a lot of time and that's why I always go back to I know how much it costs for four kids to play soccer three of us three boys I know how much football boots cost and that's the problem people don't realise the how much it costs parents to buy the best boots the kit the registration fees the petrol like mm. we, we were we were in a Nissan Prairie driving um, you know all packed in a car then you know, drop two off, then drop one off, and then um, boots, and then socks, shin pads, like, and that's the only thing. Even with my academy, academies now, I spend more time teaching the kids more about mentorships, about going home and saying thank you to their parents. I teach more time teaching them about manners and what makes them tick. You know, I'm not a coach, I'm a mentor, and that's when I do something with a national national team or this club here, they follow. They follow because they can see I've got the right intent. Um, and when I do something, I do it because I want to do it. And it, it doesn't phase me what people think. So did you feel the pressure of your parents' investment? Yeah. That was, you talk about pressure. There's more pressure in that than there was because my brother was, two brothers were exceptional soccer players. And you've got to think about when you're renting and that money going towards a deposit for a house out west at the time. You can buy a house for 150 grand at the time and 10% deposit was what they got me to go overseas to stay with my fam, my mum's family, um, which were the Stanleys, Smoke and Joe Stanley, his family from New Zealand All Black, to wait to get a trial for a couple of months. So I had to stay there and, you know, tough it out till I got the trial, so. And at the trial, were you a standout? Were you okay? Were you off the pace? Oh, I think I was a standout. I think I, kn I knew I was a standout. You know, I trained at the den. After a week, Bob Pearce and Alan Butts were like, I, I sensed that they were happy. You know, Paul Eiffel was on trial with me. Um, 
He played a little bit here in the A-League, close friend. We signed on the same day, but... Can you tell me about that? Can you tell me, like, you, you've got to this point, so Millwall offer you a contract. Like, do you go into an office and they say, right, to we want to sign you? What, what happens? No, I had the phone call from Bob and Alan. They said, we've got three contracts here. We've got one for Millwall, um, £250 a week plus digs paid. Diggs is, you live with the family. And I had, I think it was QPR, £500 a week, plus digs paid, first division. And I had the Premier League contract, which was 1000 plus digs paid. But you trialled with Millwall? Trialled with Millwall. And word had got out for... Oh, they watched. See if right. Word had got out. The agent said, the Aussie kid, a little bit fearless. This <laughs> kid running around. You know, I reckon he could do a job. Very raw. And I remember the words, you know, and they obviously need some tidying up. Um, but I had an engine that would never stop. Um, and I remember speaking to my parents. My dad was buzzing. Yeah, Premier League contract. And I spoke to my mum. And we've got the other side of our culture, which is, you know, loyalty. I said to my mum, Mills opposed to me. I said they'd give me my opportunity. And because they're giving you the chance. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. Is my mum always said, don't ever forget where you come from first. You know, like, and that was pretty much what stuck with me. And when I went there, I said to her, I'm signing for Millwall. That was like, what? <laughs> Even I think the agents were, the agents were, <laughs> were whatever. But let's be honest, like, I needed to learn my trade. Same way a mechanic does or a bricklayer. I respected it and I just wanted a training kit to call myself professional then probably the two of, the two of the hardest years of my whole career were the first two, three years, you know. Um, I didn't appreciate the jobs you had to do. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't understand that, Timmy, about an apprenticeship. Yeah. Well, I think it should be bought into every sport tomorrow. I think... T- tell people what you were doing so they know what we're talking about. Well, you're part of um, a group of 20 players, whatever the, the team was, a youth team, and your responsibility as a youth team is you have you know, the captain and leaders and you'd pair off or you'd go into groups of four. Everyone would get two first team players each, you wash their boots, make sure they're, you know, shine and everything, clean, not wet on the insides or they'll go crazy. Um, you have to split up into fours, so one group will clean the showers, next group will clean the toilets, next group will clean the changing room. Then another group would clean uh, the hallways and gym, another group would clean the kitchen. Um, and pick up the rubbish outside, the car park area. So this was the discipline side. And funny enough, the English mentality, we had so many different cultures and players from around the world that um, it worked. We had music on, it was a competition, it was um, camaraderie, then it was like a competition who could clean you know, toilets better than so each other. you were cleaning toilets. Yeah, and, and you know what? It was nothing I wasn't used to because they were like, oh, this kid on this professional contract, see if this Aussie likes to do that. And, mate, when I embraced it, I got embraced into the group very quick because I took pride in cleaning the showers and the toilets and we all did and would rotate. And then that became part of the camaraderie, but it, it taught us our trade, really. It made us respect our own surroundings. You know, so when you come into a facility like this, hmm. it's first class, everything's done. Um, when you go into a facility at Millwall, we did it. We owned it. We created the culture. And that's what culture's all about. And that's what's important in sports. 
is players that take pride of everything. So a kit man at Millwall at Everton, I still speak to to this day. Roy Part at Millwall and um, Jimmy Martin, Jimmy Lala, Tony Sage at Everton. <laughs> and that's the heartbeat. That's where the banter comes from. And that's the, I think that's culture in itself. Where did your wife come into the equation? Oh, well, high school. High school, sweetheart? Yeah, high school. Poor. Oh, you old romantic you. It's a poor thing. <laughs> Let's not even go there. Putting up with me. <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still married to a football. She's given me four of the most beautiful children and don't ask me how she's done it. What was it about? Beck? I think it was about best mate. She's my best mate even till this day. Right. Like, um, That's cool. Yeah. It is pretty cool. Especially through the... You were just a school kid then and you became an international superstar. I was actually saying to my partner today, I think I sort of say, how cool is that that they're still together? Yeah. Oh, I think, I think what comes with relationships is ups and downs. And the hardest thing being a professional footballer, I suppose, is believing in your own hype. And whether you like it or not, every player goes through that. But you always need someone to smash you down. Did you ever get to a point where you were believing your own heart? Comes, it, it, it pretty much comes with it, and you can use it as an excuse, but it's no excuse. I think there's nothing a left hook can't fix from your missus. <laughs> Not to say she did that, but... That may be the quote of 36 episodes. Yeah. There's nothing a left hook from the missus can't sort out. No, nah, it's lucky I've got... I, I can duck, but... Um, no, I think, I think, you know, saying that in jest, I think the... The thing is you need someone to always put you in line and not get off track of what the end result is because what is the end result of being a professional footballer? Let's really look at it. What is it? I look at it now as what I can leave behind. At the start, when you look at a professional football, you ask any kid now being a professional, it's only about the cars, it's about the houses, it's about Mm -hmm. their lifestyle, it's about everything that comes with it, all these TV shows. And what should it be about? It should be about what you're going to leave behind. And that's probably half the reason why I accepted to do this show because of the people that you've interviewed. They've got a strong backbone in what they believe in. And like you said, they've done it the hard way, but when they speak, people listen. Mm. You know, they take them seriously. When someone speaks about the things that comes with it, it's an insecurity. You know, it's not a, you know, you look at some of the athletes we have now, it's always about what comes with it, you know. They never talk about what made it and how they're still trying to make it, you know, and that's what, for me, is a big missing point between becoming a professional in sport. <clears throat> I didn't know that you would be this deep. I don't know if it's deep. I think it's honest. It's um, not just a football player. By any stretch of imagination. It's probably the last on my list. Yeah. Yeah, you get that impression talking to you. But what's it like? What's day-to-day life like? You were at Millwall, you went to Everton. What's day-to-day life being an athlete in the English Premier League, which is one of the biggest sporting competitions on the planet? Prehab, massage, treatment, train. Prehab, massage, treatment, train. Kids come in there when you leave for school. After school, you try and fit in some homework with them. Someone comes around and treats you. But you're playing two, three games a week. 
you know, on the biggest stage in the world where people are watching, so it becomes robotic. You know, I'm sharing a physio with Mikel Arteta and Phil Neville. Yeah, you get time to enjoy it, but it's it's 100% commitment. And you know when you haven't prepared right, because it shows in your performance. Fatigue, sloppy touches. How do you feel about yourself when you know that, when you're out on the park? When you just haven't prepared right. You know with sloppy touches, you know when you're that half a yard too short. You and know, how do you feel when you know you haven't prepared right? You're trying to, you're always trying to um, correct it. You're always trying to find ways to be smarter. You know, as you get older, you become cuter in situations and you use your brain more. When when you're younger, you just run till the tank blows up. And then that's where athletes um, burn out. So I think it just becomes, you know, for me even now, I just do just as much work now than what I've ever done with that sort of stuff. But it's it's full on because of the demand and because your return is so high regardless, but it's up to you what, you know, how long you want to play for and what you want to get from it. So what's the most joyous moment when you're playing in the English Premier League and you're doing all that work? What, where does the joy come? Winning, scoring, winning 100%. Goodison Park, full house, scoring the winner, Premier League. You don't understand the waves that it makes till you go to a country and someone says, oh, can I have a photo? I'm in Timbuktu when someone's asked me for, for a photo. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. A lot of love for last week's episode of the Howie Games featuring the very funny Simon O'Donnell. Thanks for all the tweets, Instagram, Facebook, etc. at MarkHowes03. Everyone got a real laugh out of Simon, but people also appreciated the serious side and Simon's battle with cancer. Um, it sort of hit me that you know we're four or five days, no matter what, from getting home, and I'm going to find out what this is. Uh, so I um, knocked on Bob Simpson, the coach, and I didn't. T- well, I said, "Look, Bob, I don't think I'm well." But I said, "I just want you to know that that's why I haven't probably been myself for the last couple of days." Yeah. But I'm fine for tomorrow. Right. Nothing will stop what. I need to do tomorrow, there, there is, it is of no effect. But I think I've got a health issue. We'll deal with that when I get home. Tomorrow, it, it won't even enter my mind. And and that was, that was all I – I just thought I needed someone, mm. just my own sanity, because blokes were looking at me thinking, and what's Scoob up to? And yeah. so it, Scoob's usually singing a song and having a beer and yep. life of the party um, to an extent, and suddenly he's not. You know, what's, what's going on? That was Simon O'Donnell on last week's episode of the Howie Games. If you could, please go back and download the episode with Simon and the entire back catalogue. It'll be great if you could. It'll help our expansion plans for the show, which we're working on at the moment. Also, in recent episodes, I've told you about private Howie Games-style podcasts for those people close to you. If you have a relative or a partner, a friend, a mentor, a grandparent, etc., whose story you would like to preserve for posterity to pass down in the family or even as a gift to someone close to you, send me an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. I'll record an episode one-on-one, not for broadcast, but as a family record for current and future generations to hear. We've been flat out doing these recently. All sorts of stories have been uncovered that families will now have forever. It's been super, super cool. All righty, back to Tim. I don't reckon uh, from the outside looking in, Timmy, that I've 
seen an athlete play with as much passion and pride across any sport and I've had the pleasure of covering a lot of sports for their country mm. as you display playing for the Socceroos what does it mean to you to pull on a Socceroos well like top? people I had to fight to play for Australia don't forget and not just because I had to fight for it because I played for Samoa then I got cleared I was one of the you know special cases so you were a young bloke to play for Samoa and then they uh, had a court case that allowed me to then play for Australia. Was there a point where you didn't think they were going to let you? 100%. So you played as a 14-year-old? 14-year-old, had phone calls from Ireland. Don Givens at the time, Mick McCarthy, I think it was. God, thank God Inquiry. you said no to them. Yeah, thank Inquiry. God you said no to them. So, so then, what was it like when you thought, because of the minutes I've played for Samoa, I might not be able to represent Australia? I was okay because I knew that, it, you know, I had permission you know, from the FAs and they already cleared it that they said that I could, you know, come back to Australia and just the whole scenario. But I was worried. But the thing was is when when the clearance did come, it was like I'm never going to ever let someone take that jersey off me again. And that's the, you know, one of the reasons why I continued to play on and I decided to, after the last era, and Ange took the job over and he made a decision on keeping a few older players and I was one of them and I bought into his project that I believe in a hell of a lot in leading these guys hopefully to another World Cup and you can't just give up the Australian top just because, I don't know, it's it's a job. For me, it's a responsibility. It's an obligation and, you know, I, I see... Rugby players, rugby union, you talk about Cathy Freeman, everyone that represents Australian sport. It's a proud thing, very, very proud thing. And I take that, you know, very seriously. You know, I treat every game like it's my last. And I'm lucky that Ange brought that extra mentality into me. And he said to me for the last World Cup, he said, why, why can't this be your best ever World Cup? Boom, header against Chile. I can't be the, this be your best ever game the next one boom cracker against Netherlands then I got suspended couldn't get play against Spain and then I was thinking alright it's got to be it and he goes why can't this be your best Asian Cup ever score goals then we won it well, come, so he's always constantly digging me in the ribs and and that's the sort of thing that now I say to my teammates you know, before we go out to Syria it's like there's a cliff boys and when you jump off this cliff before we go out to the game, you can relax. Nothing's, we're not going to get hurt. We're going to land on our feet because we've got 23 of us, you know, that will pull us through this game. And I truly believe that. And that's the Australian mentality. And that's all that game needed. We could play 3-5-2, 4-4-2, mm. whatever. All these people talk about tactics. But when it comes down to it, it comes down to who wants to win it more in the in the big occasions, and we've got two more steps to go. Couple of World Cup moments: the title of the first Australian to score in a World Cup against Japan. I, I'm sure people tell you all the time where they were. I was in a hotel in New Zealand, yeah, uh, with work, and the phone rang because it was two o'clock in the morning, and they were concerned that there was something going on in the room because yeah. I was making that much noise. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm sure people come up to you all the time and say, "I was here, I was there, I was watching there." Um, 
Japan and you've scored in a World Cup. What's it like as a World Cup? You've come from Western Sydney, you've been told you're too small, Sydney Olympic wouldn't give you a run, you go to Millwall, you're cleaning toilets. Timmy, you're scoring goals in the World Cup. It's, it's like I'm rewriting my book, Legacy, again. You know, that's why it's easy to talk about because it's natural and it's organic for me because I remember sitting on the bench next to Spider, Kalach, a few of the boys. And in the morning, uh, not night before I was playing, morning I got dropped. And then uh, sitting on the bench, disappointed but also selfless in the fact that I knew I was at a World Cup, everything I've ever dreamed of and got my chance to come on. Good sitting speaking to me and I didn't just blah 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 blah. <laughs> You'll see it. It's it's clear as clear as day in the clips. And um I just went out there. It was like I was in the garden with my cousins, my brothers and you know, the one that I scored with first, from a Lucas Neal throw, Harry Kiel squaff, fell to me, shot through one leg, through Johnny Aloisi's legs, keepers try to go down, can't see it, boom, trickles in the net. There you go, um, first ever goal scoring in the World Cup. But I didn't think that, I didn't know that, I didn't care about that. What do you care about? I don't know, there's an out-of-body experience that happens when I score. Can't explain it. Watch what? every goal I've ever scored. What happened? You just go crazy. You just it's a it's a release of emotions, derby goals, you name it. Um, probably the calmest I've ever been was against Syria. Uh, and relaxed. Because I knew there was still another stage, but also I knew that that moment was meant for me. You know, you see when I'm just looking, it's the calmest I've ever been. You look at the second goal again that I scored in that game against Socceroos. You're just mental. You know, you can't explain it. Ask any sportsman that's ever won anything or scored or done something amazing um, what it feels like. Far out. If you can be, if you're Roger Federer or Nadal, you can be calm because mm. they win everything. Mm. <laughs> but if you, you know, Tim Cahill, you know, fighting and fighting and fighting, the, every time you score, it's like, bloody hell, he's done it again. He shouldn't be able to do that. He should be retired. You know, because if I don't play well that game and we draw or lose, next phase isn't going to have Australia out of World Cup. It's going to be like, Tim, hang your boots up. So the way I think of it is I can do nothing but prepare 100%. There are no rooms for error for, with, for me, and I take that as a compliment. In the intro to this, which you won't hear, I just introduced the guest and I sort of said that when it gets to crunch times, when the Socceroos are playing, the collective nation all thinks the same thing. Kick the ball to bloody Timmy Kane. That's what <laughs> the nation thinks. Is the best goal you've ever scored, you mentioned it briefly on, against the Netherlands in the World Cup, so, with your own foot? Here comes Tim I think the stage, the way it was set, Robin just scored that goal and a couple of minutes later, not even, I've scored a bomb because it was like the first reaction was to react. Our, our intent always when we play under edge is to go forward. We don't take a step back. And on that stage, 
we had a feeling we could do well in that World Cup and we dominated large parts of the game, but that's the whole process. If we had won, it would mean more. Yeah, it's the best goal. Um, you know, I've scored a scissor kick against China. I've scored some other goals, but important goals. I look at important goals in, you know, UAE, away from home, this World Cup campaign, to make it 1-0, mm. the heat, the three points. If we had drawn then, then where would we be sitting now? Maybe not looking at a World Cup, so we can't look this far. Definitely not looking at a World Cup. You know, Cup. I, look at, I look at defining moments um, that can change a game the first goal you scored to make it the 4-0 you know stuff like that so I look a lot deeper into it but also um, yeah I scored a few great goals and it's more the meaning of the goals you know Syria could that be you know one of the greatest moments for me as a footballer we'll find out in a couple of weeks we will you know when you slide over to Honduras yeah and hopefully score a few more goals you've been really good with your time um, there's just a couple of things I want to ask you briefly and then I want to ask you about your, your um, Foxtel Tim Carl Academy Ambitions Tour. Best player you've seen? You don't need to give... Yeah. Best player you've seen? Cristiano Ronaldo. I think um, I played against him. He was my neighbour in Manchester when I played for Everton. Amazing guy, but best player because of his improvement obsessed with the game after that Mikel Arteta, Phil Neville and Thierry Henry the three close friends that were my teammates but kids listening at home to this or even people in the business world um, what do you reckon, and this is not an easy one what do you reckon the key to success is? being selfless selfless Yeah. explain well if you make the people around you better and stronger can only make you better but you've got to stay in your own lane you've got to do what you do well um, that's scoring headers or being the one that presents the portfolio to the commercial team then just stay in your own lane and be selfless you know, because I've got better as age because I know what my lane is I know it's not being the main man even though the main man situation always comes up because I score at the same time I wish Tommy Urich Robbie Cruz Aaron Moy Matt Ryan Leckie these players just as much success as me and I try and make them stronger because if they make my team stronger that means we win so um, being brought up from Mill and Everton I know the recipe for success and doesn't always mean you're going to win, but you're going to enjoy having a long career. What do you learn from losing? What do you learn from injury? What do you learn from not getting selected? That you've got to look at yourself first. Preparation. Is there something you could have done better to be selected? And is there something you could have done better not to get injured? So, you know, after I broke both my two fist metatarsals and my ACL in those two seasons, very early in my career, touch wood, um, in 20 years I've had three serious injuries. How much work goes into preparing your body to be able to play at, what are you now? 30... 38 in a couple of months. Well, let's say 30, yeah. around 35. Yeah, I wish. How much work goes into it? A lot, a lot. Everything is physio, preparation. Um, What's the uh, hardest thing you do to prepare? What's the thing that you really think, oh no? 
I think now is I run harder than I've ever run in pre-season and topping up. You know, you talk about 120 minutes of football and people are saying he's a bench player. The other night, it didn't hurt me because it was for a purpose. Um, the recovery was quick and I was ready to play against Melbourne Victory on the Saturday even though that I only played 15 minutes. Um, so the mental side of it is more than anything, you know, because you're mm. fighting the crowd, you're fighting all the demons that stops people performing, you know, who can't... A lot of people who can't get that moment again, they can't get it because it's mental and they can't find it again because they can't do it. They don't know how to do it because they're focusing on that high that makes it feel so good, but they don't know how to deal with the low. And I feel for myself is because I've had so many highs and lows is, you know, I've had family to fall back onto and if I do well, they're happy for me. And if I don't do well, then, you know, we're all back in the house together with 16 of us in there at once. So <laughs> it's uh, a, good, uh, a good mate of mine who hosts the footy for Fox Sports, Adam Peacock. He said to me, oh, when you speak to Tim, what you'll come to realise he's almost like Greg Norman in his approach to business. Mm. Um, I remember MJ, who's in the room with us today, organised an interview with you and a suit arrived for me. Carl Plus, I think it wasn't a very nice suit. It is too. Nice. Um, you're into a lot of business type of things. Yeah. What do you get from that, whether it be the academy, which we're about to talk about, or fashion? Or I get, um, you know, we all went to school. I didn't finish high school, but um, I was smart enough that I did all my homework, did everything to the best of my ability, and I now want to utilise it. But I've been utilising it now for the last 10 years. You know, when I set up a company, 417, with Chris Elder and Jake, the two guys from Avoca Beach who were my best mates, a lawyer, I said to him, you know, quit your job, work for me. <laughs> Told his son, you do the same. It's just us three. That's it. And I wanted to learn more about the commercial world in America, China, the business world, and set up my life after football. When you learn about basketball players, they take percentages, equity in companies, and you know, you know, you're not worried about the money. In my situation, um, I want to be heavily involved in um, businesses. I want to have a say. I want to help build brands and. Um, you know, why can't after football, if you choose to be a CEO, because um, anyone that's been successful who own companies pretty much don't even have a degree. And I know that for a fact. Mm -hmm. um, so grassroots is another one um, that I work heavily on. We're well, talking about grassroots, um, and we talked about a lot in the intro, the Foxtel Tim Cale Academy Ambitions Tour. Mentioned in the intro and a couple of times the website, you've got to be aged between 13 and 16. The kids get involved with you. I know reading about you that you started with one-on-one -on -one training as a seven-year-old. You explained the importance of it. Why? Why Why do something like this? You know, it's funny because I didn't have this pathway as a kid and it was too expensive to play. Even still now to this day, it's still too expensive to play. You know, I pay $3,000 for my 12-year-old to play. Is it? Um, and it's a big issue in Australia. One of the biggest things is five years ago when I was playing New York Red Bulls, I had a meeting with Robert Thompson, the CEO of News Corp, and he asked me, you know, what are your goals in life? And I said, if I can do something, I want to leave a legacy in football. Um, and I want to, you know, start some sort of grassroots program. So we got together, you know, met up with a few of the big heads of Fox Sports and Foxtel, 
time it was you know, um, Richard Fortestein and Patrick Delaney and a few others and I said to them, you know, if you guys are here or leave or stay, I said, always make sure your name will be on this. And in the five years we've coached, you know, thousands and thousands of kids, free program. We give them some pathways and now we have the ambitions to, uh, which is our fourth one now, we take 22 kids from across Australia, um, 24 kids, 12 boys, 12 girls, um, to live like Tim Cale for five days. And, you know, we've had... Matildas, Ellie Carpenter, we've got Sophia Sakala, Sadish just signed here, a few other boys. But the main thing is, is I'm a mentor. I'm somebody that gives so much more on the other side. And Robbie Anderson, my coach that I brought over from Everton, worked there for 17 years. So I know I've got so much more to give. And uh, I look at the model of AFL, I look at what they're doing. And, you know, now we just launched into schools, 4,000 kids in five months, free program. Um, and I'm looking to expand, expand, and I'm always putting pressure on the commercial heads to, you know, help change the game from underneath, you know, because we're a separate entity to any, mm. any, you know, FFA or anything. We're totally independent, and that's because I said I'll come home to the A-League, but this is part of the contract, and I'm thankful that I can drive something that I'm passionate about, but also... Um, you know, create some pretty amazing opportunities for them as well. We are at our one-hour point, so we are done. But you don't escape. You got the big penguin. Now you get the pickle. You talk, pickle. You your get daughter. The pickle now the seven-year-old. Um, is this your daughter? Yeah, this is my daughter. So you got. Uh, uh, she quite likes the Matildas. So you were talking about uh, a couple of the girls there. I'm sorry for this question, but you're just going to deal with it. Sleep. Hi Tim, Pickle here. Respect to you when you box a flag after you score a goal. But I love when Sam Kerr scores a goal and she does a backflip. What can you start doing backflip? Wow, Pickle, cheers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do a backflip and break my back, but <laughs> Right, I'll do a deal, Pickle. If you put a trampoline on the side of the pitch, I'll do a backflip. But I think this one's a bit hard. I reckon if I was challenged, I probably could do a backflip, but it'll take a lot of training. And I don't know whether this body could um, risk doing those sorts of celebrations because, uh, yeah. Don't snap in half on the way to Honduras, Johnny. Keep the Pickle happy. Hey, mate. Thanks, Pickle. Hey, thanks to you. You've given us an hour of your time. And I said to you at the start, this podcast is about motivating, inspiring, and I couldn't think of a better guest to come on. Um, mate, good luck with the uh, Foxtel Tim Kale Ambitions Tour, everything going forward, Honduras, the next World Cup business, mate. You've, um, you've been a stunning guest. I've really enjoyed having you on. Pleasure. Thank you, Howie. And thanks for having me, mate. Easy done. Good on you, mate. Sir. Tim Kale, I salute you. The Pickle and Big Penguin salute you. MJ salutes you. The entire nation salutes you. Thanks for your time and for having a wonderful chat on the Howie Games. Again, jump on foxtel.com.au slash Academy if you're between 13 and 16 and you want to learn all about the beautiful game. Now, before I sign off on Series 2, MJ, he has come in for a bit of stick this series, but without him, there ain't no Howie Games. There wouldn't have been Tim Kale either. So well done to you, brother. Also, thanks to Grant Tothill, 
Grant Blackley and Jamie Chow and all the rest of the fantastic crew at Podcast One for believing in our humble little podcast. Your support has absolutely rocked. A lot of people ask me about the music on the show. All you need to do is Google Billy Mystic. That's Billy Mystic, who he recorded singing at his surf camp in Jamaica. And if you listen closely, that is Billy's grandkids playing around in the background. And finally, thank you to all of you out there for supporting the show. I feel blessed is probably the right way of saying it, to be able to meet and chat with some wonderful people about their lives. I don't take it lightly. I don't take it for granted. It is an amazing opportunity. And without all the downloads, I couldn't do it. So thanks to you all out there. And don't forget, hit subscribe and you will not miss our series return in late November. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener